our commonwealth is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So says Philippians 3.20 in the RSV, a predecessor of the ESV. Our commonwealth is in heaven. Our citizenship, so says the ESV. I like commonwealth because it has some sort of political meaning for us that I believe Paul is trying to convey that our nation is the kingdom of God. That's our nation. Our patriotism should be to the kingdom of God. Our loyalty, our allegiance is to the kingdom of God. What we want to see succeed is the kingdom of God. And the joy of being part of the kingdom of God is beyond wishing it to see succeed. We know it will succeed. This should have ramifications for our here and now. It does not always. And honestly, it seems many Christians in our nation see themselves first and foremost as an American who loves God. And not a Christian, a church member, a heavenite who happens to find their exile or their sojourning in a nation called the USA. A nation that is subservient to is less than and will exist far shorter than the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, exists. Our commonwealth is in heaven. Can you say that with me? Our commonwealth is in heaven. As you turn to Acts 16, by way of reminder, we pick up our study in Philippi right after Paul and Silas just suffered some mob violence, really for freeing a demonized woman from her demons. Now, of course, their attackers and persecutors found some jacked-up charges to try them on while in jail since they weren't in low, you know, low, such a low state yet. An earthquake happened, and then the jailer came to Paul and Silas asking how to be saved. He was just saved, they celebrated, and then presumably Paul and Silas have been taken back to jail, and we pick up the story here in Acts 16, beginning with verse 35, and we're going to read through 17, verse 9. I invite you to stand if you're able, let's read this together, Acts 16, 35, through chapter 17, verse 9. But... When it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they were encouraged, they encouraged them and departed. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and 
Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the, other, uh, some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, there is another king. His name is Jesus. Use these words that you wrote through your Holy Spirit to apply that truth to our hearts and lives today. Help us to take great comfort. For many of us, maybe it means to take great conviction. However you desire to use it, we pray that you would give us the grace to respond accordingly and obediently. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you haven't left us to our own devices, but that you have filled us and that we can respond obediently to each and everything you call us to do. A scary and a dangerous thing is the fact that we have the ability to say yes to everything you ask us to do. Help us to say yes. Get me out of the way and say what it is you desire. I ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our citizenship is in heaven, in the kingdom of God. However, our king has said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. John 18, 36. Our king, the very king of the nation we are citizens in, has come to the kingdoms of the world, was tried falsely, executed brutally, and brought in his kingdom through his death. He inaugurated his kingdom in what is perceived by the world to be his colossal failure. He rose his kingdom from the grave, and he invites people by faith into that kingdom. He says to one skeptic, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And still again, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. People uh, bicker, what does this water mean? Is this a natural birth or is it baptism? makes sense to me to think of it as baptism, that this is this conversion. This is acknowledging that God has saved us. He has been lowered. We have been lowered into his death, cleansed by his death, raised again with him. 
and the grant of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's how we enter the kingdom of God. Unlike any other nation in the world, the kingdom of God is one that is spiritual, transcendent, long-lasting, and in fact, everlasting. And we can be a full citizen by faith and regeneration, being born again. We don't have paperwork to go through. We don't have sinful leadership to question, wonder about, elect, and bemoan. We have the King of kings and the Lord of lords, whom the whole world will be accountable to. But we remain, as you know, citizens in the world. Citizens of our earthly nations and kingdoms, where we do have certain rights, where we operate, where we may take full advantage of all that being citizens offers us in the early er, uh, earthly nation that we're in. Paul and Silas are about to exercise their rights as citizens of Rome, although they be citizens of the kingdom of God first and foremost. Now again, we're catching up after a nice break, I'm sure, for Paul and Silas after the rioting, beating, imprisonment, and earthquake. They, uh, then they got to lead their jailer to Christ. They got to have a meal with his family. They baptized his household. And then it appears that they were either brought back to the prison, or maybe the jailer just went to the magistrates and said, hey, they're at my house after the earthquake. Um, but maybe he even explained his own conversion to the authorities. We, we don't know, but we, what we do read is in verse 35, we say, but when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. Now some wonder about the change of mind that the rulers make here. Many theories have been put forward. A bunch of Gentile pagans got scared thinking Paul and Silas somehow caused the earthquake. Or it could be that the magistrates had no more punishment in mind. <laughs> well, maybe a riot and an imprisonment is good enough to get these guys' attention. We don't know. Verse 36 and the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Uh, go in peace. Interesting choice of words here. Now that he's a brother uh, in Christ and a friend of Paul, no doubt, maybe what he's saying is, Don't make it worse for you. <laughs> Don't stir up more riots. Don't make it to where you'll never get out of Philippi alive. You've planted a church in Lydia's house. You've saved me and my family. Now just go. But stubborn Paul. Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Not take us out in the killing sense, but... The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid that they heard that they were Roman citizens. Here we see Paul begin to exercise his status, his position as a citizen of Rome and the world. Roman law said that Roman citizens could not be punished, beaten, imprisoned, anything without trial. So some understandably asked, well, why didn't Paul and Silas mention that in the first place? <laughs> Back before the riot started. And that's the answer. <laughs> Back before the riot started. Need I remind you of what was on the news for half a year last year? 
And there was a particular case where there was a senator and his family were threatened by the mobs. So social standing, decorum, and respect for one's fellow man, I don't know if you realize, but they don't really play into thinking during a mob or a riot. And uh, so Paul and Silas, maybe as they're being whipped, I'm sure they could have yelled all they wanted to about citizenship, but it was not going to do a lick of anything in the way of getting out from under that mob violence in my mind. But now that the fights are done, and now that Paul and Silas illegally, unnecessarily, and unlawfully serve their time, and nobody's riled up, beating each other up, Paul thinks it's a little appropriate to mention this now. You know, hey, we happen to be Roman citizens. But others might throw in, well, Paul, what about turn the other cheek? Are you being a little arrogant here, Paul? Is he seeking worldly retribution or personal retaliation? And and I really don't think so. If Paul wanted to be personal about it, he actually probably could have sought to sue the slave owners who started this whole mess. Uh, That would have been more full worldly justice, but I don't think Paul and Silas are necessarily in it for that. I think Paul had higher objectives in mind. His aim was not for any personal reason so much as, I think, to cast off any bad publicity put on the church during the whole affair. You and I know how quickly the reasons for mob violence and uh, the seeds that apparently started such hostility can be lied about. People can be sucked into misinformation. So no matter the the beating that Paul and Silas endured, perhaps they wanted the town to know that the city leaders are apologizing to the church founders. And in so doing, uh, they're giving a a negative light on what just ensued and what happened. And so the church founders are are not insurrectionists, and they they were and are Roman citizens whose enterprise in town, their church, is completely legitimate. That's my take on it. I'm not saying it's right there in the scriptures, but it seems that would make more sense to me. So as we read in verses uh, 39 and 40, it says, So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. This was the first gal that got saved, and they showed up in Philippi, and she opened her house to them. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This makes sense. That, that though the leaders apologized to them, they, they still asked them to leave. Now the city leaders cannot ensure that they'll be safe, as there may be other people, like the slave owner, who will find fault with something they do and incite more violence. It's because Christians are exiles in the world. They're citizens in the world, but they're also exi- exiles. See, you and I know... A better kingdom exists than this. And you're like, not too hard today to know that. Some who desire it think fighting for it is how to get it. You and I know that a better kingdom exists and is given to us. The Apostle Peter, when writing to believers later in the areas where Paul has founded these churches, he called them elect, and that's chosen, exiles. He calls them uh, sojourners and exiles because this world is not our home. Thank God. 
when, when God purchased us and when we by faith enter into his kingdom, we await the full manifestation of that kingdom. It's what Hebrews 11, 13 through 16 says, that we are exiles seeking a better homeland. This home is not our home in the fullest sense. Sure, Paul exercises his Roman rights here as citizens, but even so he's told by the Roman city, wherein he is a fully exercising citizen, hey, you better leave because we cannot ensure how you, Roman citizen, are treated in our Roman-owned city. Why? Because Paul and Silas may be Romans, but their commonwealth is in heaven. They're citizens of heaven. If you ever wonder, why does it feel like the world is against me? It's because you and I know a better kingdom. We belong to a better kingdom. We've been promised a better kingdom. But unlike the nations of the earth, which are often founded on war and brought into existence with sinners, they seem to be everywhere, these sinners, our kingdom is founded by the Prince of Peace, who brought it into existence with holiness. And a sinful, fallen world pushes back against that. It makes us exiles. And as exiles do in the worldly sense, what happens if, if many exiles migrate to one nation? What do they do? They congregate. <laughs> they make communities where they try to live their culture out, just as before Paul and Silas leave Philippi, they congregate with the church to encourage them. We have cleared our names, thus the name of the church is clear in this community, our our hope is that it will continue to grow and thrive. And so exiles as we are, we're a congregation of exiles. Furthermore, knowing our commonwealth or our citizenship is in heaven, it makes us ambassadors for Christ. Here's the thing with Paul and Silas that convicts me. You would think that they had had enough. <laughs> Riots persecution, they got out of the prison alive, they even got an official apology, you think they just count their blessings and head home. <laughs> but they realize that more than exiles who live in foreign lands, defeated, they're actually part, and we are actually part of the kingdom of God, which is a winning nation, not a defeated one. <clears throat> and so thus, not a defeated nation, but just a foreign and an, an alien in the nation in the sense that its righteousness and its holiness and its transcendence, more than exiles, we are ambassadors. And so is Paul and Silas as they head out of Philippi. We read on, it says, Now when they, now before Philippi, Luke, the author of Acts, had been using pronouns like we and us. But now he uses they. And in fact, the we and us pronouns don't pick up again until Acts chapter 20, verse 6. And guess where Paul is at then? Philippi. Uh, again, on his third missionary journey. All this to say is that many believe that Luke is staying put in Philippi. Luke is, is likely a Gentile, so he's probably under less suspicion, not being a Jew. We were cued in when all the riots started in Philippi, that among Paul and his companions... Only he and Silas, the full-blooded Jews, were targeted. So it could be that Luke is staying behind in Philippi because he's not Jewish, but he is a Christian. And it says, while they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, we don't know if they evangelized there or not, they came to Thessalonica, ultimately a hundred miles west-southwest from Philippi. 
where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now again, this is different from Philippi, where there was no synagogue in Philippi, just some Jews meeting at the river. Well, apparently Jews are a bit more welcome and thriving in Thessalonica. Verse 2, And Paul went in, the synagogue that is, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, three Saturdays, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And I just want to camp here for a bit. Now I get this. Paul is in a gathering of Jews who, who take the scriptures seriously. We don't know what Jews were, were there. Um, there were Jews both then and now who have a high regard for the scriptures. While some Jews only regarded the first five books, some of them didn't even believe in supernatural doctrines. They just believed it was a good book of laws. So we don't know what sort of Jews were in the synagogue. But, whatever the case, I want us to hear that Paul reasoned from the scriptures. Reasoned. He discussed, he, he addressed, if we pick apart the Greek word, it says from one side across to the other, getting a conclusion across. And I want to say this, don't be afraid to talk Bible with people. Don't be afraid to examine the scriptures with people. Some of us, I fear, especially if, uh, if we're with folks who have questions, who are unfamiliar with the Bible, some of us think that they're going to ask a question or point out something that we can't answer and make the Bible look stupid. You know, the scriptures speak for themselves. The prophet Isaiah, speaking on behalf of God, says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, Isaiah 1.18. God gave us a brain, and God gave us the scriptures. The scriptures written by God are not there to make us go, Well, I have that figured out, moving on. No, rather, people read this for their entire lives and still manage to learn things from it every single day. My point is, people will have questions, but those questions can be reasoned out of the scriptures. It's funny to me, I have a friend I mention from time to time, atheist or agnostic. He's very intellectual, so he lives in the brain like I do sometimes. But he told me he did have a Christian experience when he was younger. And I was blown away when he described it to me. And that... Uh, um, for as brainy as he usually is, he told me of an experience that was entirely based on emotions and feelings. He said he went to a youth uh, conference and he got goosebumps, but then he heard, sadly, a preacher, from what I gathered, who wasn't preaching Jesus, but was preaching more anti-Islam. This was right after 9-11. And so it left a sour taste in this guy's mouth who was new to Christianity entirely. So you're not saying, sorry, you might be asking Kevin, do you think Islam's okay? No, but I think Jesus is better to talk about. So this guy who told me he felt that all it was was just goosebumps, and he reasoned out himself out of Christianity, especially with a sour taste. Now, I would too. If I went to church and I expected to hear the Bible and Jesus, and all I got was, hey, hate these people. But I, I told him that it fascinated me because my faith, Especially as I've grown, while it has emotions, of course, but my faith and belief are firmly planted in reason, thought, intellectual proof, that as I think these things through, Jesus and Christianity just makes more sense to me than any other alternative. 
Whereas he, usually a reasonable, thoughtful, intellectual person, seemed to have made judgments on faith that are based entirely on emotions and experience. My point is, is that the Bible, the Word of God, hearing the Gospel is something that we can reason with others. And our reasoning, if our, our reading the Bible right comes to a point, Paul brings it to this point at the synagogue, verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Notice this wording. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Jews already had a picture in the mind of who the Christ is. The Christ from the Greek Christos in turn from the Hebrew Messiah, Messiah and Christ are the same word, just different languages, was, was a prophetic figure already in the Jewish mind. This is why when a bunch of pagan foreigners called the Magi coming from the east to look for a prophesied birth, a few Bible scholars in Jerusalem knew what they were talking about and could point out some prophecies. They pointed out Micah 5.2, which said he would be born in Bethlehem. Then, like good little hypocritical scholars, they stayed home, <laughs> apparently unmoved by the prospect of the Messiah being born in their life. Meanwhile, the pagan wise men who just traveled, who knows how many miles, traveled a few more miles to see if this was so. <laughs> the Jewish king, Messiah, was born so that they could worship them. Or it could have not been hypocrisy of the scholars. It could be the same reason that Paul has to reason with these other Jews about the Messiah, because many believe that the Messiah would be of David's line. He was from Bethlehem, but also noble. So the scholars could be saying, well, there is Micah 5 too, but even if the Messiah's origins are connected to Bethlehem, he'll obviously be born in Jerusalem to a noble, kingly line. He's a king. Let me give you a contemporary illustration. I wonder if any of you have thoughts or ideas about the end of the world. It's a very not-discussed subject, so I would be surprised if you did. No. But I wonder if any of you have ever, I don't know, read books, watched movies, looked at teachings, and, and say, Kevin, or whoever else, uh, this makes sense. They got verses, the world's going to end this way, and that's the mark of the beast, and one world nation, and blah, blah, blah. Well, Jews in Jesus' time and before were certain of a lot of things about the Messiah. <laughs> He's going to be a king. He'll be a descendant of David. He's going to lead Israel to a prime time return. Israel's going to be a superpower again. Make Israel great again. No, just, he'll be a warrior. But among these things, the idea or the prospect of a child born in a manger, son of poor parents whose mother was scandalized from his birth, and a carpenter by trade, not near the palace, not near the throne. No, that can't be the Messiah. And if these things weren't enough, a carpenter by trade, a rural rabbi with no official training that we know of, he dines with sinners, he touches lepers, he thinks he can forgive sins, he has weird ideas about the Sabbath. No, that's nowhere near our idea of the Messiah. And finally, hunted down by other Jewish leaders, criminally executed by Rome, hung on a tree, the curse of the disobedient and the law. What do you mean this is the Messiah? But Paul reasoned from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. 
Among many prophecies we could point to, perhaps of greatest relevance and significance, to prove that the Messiah must suffer is Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servant, a prophecy upwards of 700 years prior to the time of Jesus. See, there's this prophecy of the servant throughout Isaiah. There's four uh, poems about the servant, but the last of which says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This is what makes our king and kingdom better than all other kingdoms. Follow me here. What do we try to do every four years in America at least? Who's going to fix our problems? Who can we elect or what party can we elect? What programs can we put into place to, to hold back the tide of all these problems? Who's going to fix our injustices? Who's going to expose the dark agendas and root out the corruption? Who can we choose to make all the bad things go away? And what Jesus is, is a king who gets to the root of the problem. He doesn't use charisma, character, politics, programs, and policies. Instead, he takes on our sin. <laughs> Which, if you didn't know, that is the cause, the source, and the root of all problems, injustices, evils, and dark agendas. And he says, I will take those things on me. And I will die for them. And he rises up after dying for them. I haven't met a president, king, or prime minister who's done that little nugget besides Jesus. And he says, all authority is given to me. He says, I have ushered in a kingdom above all other kingdoms. Sign me up. He's the one I've been wanting to elect forever. He is the king of kings and the prince of peace, and he truly saves. And so now Paul and Silas are ambassadors for this king because they're part of the commonwealth of heaven and their sovereign is first, foremost, and utmost King Jesus. And they speak on his behalf. They reason that he is the Messiah because he has ushered in a far better kingdom than Israel could have ever imagined. And some of them, according to our text, that is the Jews at the synagogue where Paul was reasoning from the scriptures about King Jesus, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few, an archaic way of saying quite a few, of the leading women. There is, is evidence historically that uh, many upper-class women in the Greco-Roman world were interested in Judaism, and they would often fund or support the, the synagogue communities. Well, apparently these ladies were within earshot, and they responded to the gospel. And so now, new, to, new citizens and exiles and ambassadors for Christ are born. More citizens are taken into the kingdom of kingdoms. Citizens who were and are part of the same kingdom that you are a part of right now, if you know, love, and trust, and serve King Jesus. And if we're part of the kingdom of kingdoms... If we're citizens of both that kingdom and the earthly kingdom we find ourselves in, but if we're exiles but ambassadors, what do we know about these earthly terms? 
ambassadors will occupy their homes in foreign nations so long as what? <laughs> so long as those nations are on good terms. King Jesus has his sights set on the world, though. And he makes no qualms about that. He is an occupying and an invading force that will eventually have the entire world under his feet. There is no nation in the world right now that can even be classified as a threat to the kingdom of God. Indeed, King Jesus and his kingdom will have every nation under his conquest. Our king is not a king who sweats beads, makes plans, and says, hope this strategy works. Again, he says, all authority is given to me, and his plan is to spread his kingdom by his gospel. And when a kingdom is invading and occupying, there will be pushback. And when the kingdom values of the kingdom over kingdoms does not match or support the kingdom values of little lowercase kings and their little lowercase kingdoms, it renders citizens of God's kingdom as enemies of the state. And that's what we see in Thessalonica now. Now that God's kingdom has invaded Thessalonica, Paul and the church become enemies of the state. We read in, in verse 5, but the Jews, and Luke seems to be using this term Jews as the evangelist John did in his book, and that is Luke is likely referring to high-ranking or social elite Jews who are opposed to Jesus. They were jealous. It could be that Paul and the Christians who are getting those leading women who have been supporting the synagogue financially, maybe that's what they're jealous about, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. Now, some translations would say evil men from the marketplace. There is a, a Greek noun here, the only place in the Bible, a literal rendering, we just call them market loungers. And the idea here is that it was likely, as the ESV states, a well-known noun that said to Greek readers, rabble, thugs, or the gangsters you can hire on the street, these sorts of evil men. Uh, I love what the King James says, lewd fellows of the base assault. And, the, uh, and I know what you're wondering, why the ESV did not put that common phrase in there, but there are, are thugs just looking to fight, perhaps for a bribe or fee, they might enter into some mob violence. I don't know if I can make any contemporary connections for you or not. Tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> Mobs who set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. Now, I like how Luke just enters this Jason into the text, like you should know him. And maybe the original readers did know him. But the Bible says little, if anything else, about him. There is a Jason that Paul mentions as he signs off his letter to the Romans. And commentators love to say, well, that could be the same guy. Or it couldn't be. <laughs> Pretty 50-50. <laughs> Uh, the mob wanted Paul and Silas, but Jason was there, so they dragged him and some unnamed Christians before the city authorities, shouting. You get more attention and you raise more eyebrows if you shout. <laughs> These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Some have said that in that day there were Jewish nationalists or zealots trying to incite a revolt against Rome, and they would succeed in inciting one in the late 60s, but they would fail 
uh, disastrously unbiblical terms, uh, that revolt. In any case, it's not clear if the mob is trying to connect these Christians in Thessalonica with the zealots. I think it's more likely they're just trying to raise suspicion and exaggerate anything that they've heard. Maybe they've heard about what happened in Philippi where another riot happened. Verse 7, And Jason has received, the New King James has harbored them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another King Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. This is essentially with what Jesus was charged with. Sedition. They are right about one thing, though. There is another king named Jesus. There is another kingdom, and it's a whole lot better than Caesar's kingdom, and it's a whole lot better than our kingdom, where Paul and Silas, uh, where Paul and Silas and the Christians were acting against the decrees of Caesar, I don't know. It's probably just jacked up to get them tried for sedition. But King Jesus' kingdom isn't seditious. It's just right. It is a kingdom, as Jesus says, not of this world and not from this world, which is a good thing because this world is where all the problems happen, right? And it's what we're trying to, again, it's what we're trying to change with policies, programs, politicians, and the like, but thank God we serve a king who is not of this world and from this world. And here's another thing. These people here, I don't believe they're scared. <laughs> what they're griping to the, uh, the city authorities about, give me a break. I, I don't know about you, but whether it be media, people online, or wherever, I've met a few who almost take this tone against Christians, as in that ideology, that theology, that Christianity, it's threatening, it's doing a disservice to our society. It's to blame for a lot of evils in the, in the world. When in reality, I suspect the last verse here is maybe more telling. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. How disturbed, that's what verse 8 said, how, how disturbed when they, when they heard how seditious and anti-Caesar these creepy Christians are, how disturbed are you really when money shuts you up? I don't know. Uh, I don't think this is bribery, it's more like bail money, but perhaps out of some sort of compliance to keep the peace. For whatever reasons, reasons that I believe to, less, to be less honest, sincere, as to why these Christians scared them so, Jesus says in the Gospel, the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. And so if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And then the writer of this gospel seems to have taken that lesson to heart, because he says in one of his own letters, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. King Jesus says the world, the kingdoms of this world, push back against his kingdom because he testifies that its works are evil. I don't know about you, but I find that extremely funny because we have no problem admitting, admitting it ourselves. Every politician, political movement seems to ride on pointing the finger. That's evil. That needs fixed. 
That needs to be repaired. That's evil. That's wrong. That's unjust. But when the God of the universe, the King Jesus, points it out, hey, who are you to tell us we're evil? (laughs) He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He has bought the world with his blood. He has all authority. He's not just another king. He's the king. And so what you need to know, friends, is that being friends with the king makes you citizens in his kingdom, citizens in the world. But you and I are also exiles in the world. Knowing that our real kingdom awaits, you and I are ambassadors for Christ, and sometimes that makes us enemies of the state. And where this might be convicting is this. Are you ambassadors for Christ? Ambassadors for Christ. I've met a lot of Christians who seem to think that their citizenship is more in the USA than in heaven, and they're ambassadors for a certain political party or a certain political figure. Our hope is not in man. I'll just say it again. Our hope is not in man. It is in Christ. Our hope and our treasure is not in man. It's in the kingdom of God and it's in our King Jesus. And if you want to point people to a greater kingdom than the kingdom we're in, point them to Jesus. Point them to Jesus. Our commonwealth is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to give people real hope, a real future, they need a real king who's truly better than all other kings. Every politician that takes rule of a kingdom has the exact same problem that we have. Sin. We don't need a sinner to lead us to greatness. We have a Savior who has shown us the way to holiness. And that is our King. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's, it's hard sometimes to discern how you feel about certain nations, especially as we look at the world beyond the scope of the Bible. But one thing the Bible does teach us is that our faith, anybody's faith, is not centered anymore on a nation or a temple. It's centered on a man, and his name is Jesus Christ. It's a man who has authority over all people. It's a man who has commissioned his disciples to go to the ends of the earth, not just to one nation or a few nations. And that's the scope of your kingdom. You do have the world in your sights. Father, you've inaugurated the the kingdom with your death, resurrection, and ascension. We do hope and pray for its manifestation, its full manifestation at the end of time, where the entire world will be under your feet. Help us, no matter what nation we're in, to not place our hope and trust in any man, but in God. Help us to take complete peace, to know that even as our world might look a certain way to us right now, you know the end from the beginning, and again, you have the world set in your sights. No matter how bad it gets, your kingdom still grows. It's a spiritual kingdom. You told your disciples in Luke 17 that it's in our midst. That's where the kingdom of God is. So, Father, I thank you, and I pray that we would use this in our lives, that uh, for those of us who have been convicted, I pray for repentance. For those of us who have needed comforting, I pray that this has brought comfort. I ask and pray that you would be with us as we go about our days. And we ask and pray all this in Jesus' name.
Amen.